So tonight I want to begin by telling a story that I heard several years ago now. And when I heard it, I was very moved by it. And I hadn't, you know, I'd forgotten about it, and I just came across it today. And I found that I was just as moved today as I had been when I first heard it. Um, And I wanted to share it because it really kind of can help remind us of the context of the work that we're doing here. This is a story that was told by Lama Suryadas. He's a Western uh, teacher in the Tibetan tradition. Maybe some of you know him. He actually teaches in this area quite a bit, and he's written a few books. Um, This is his telling of a story about some time he spent with one of his teachers, Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche. It's called Wake Up Call. During the years I lived with Nosho Kempo Rinpoche and served as his attendant, I was with him almost every day. Once, I remember when he and another, another Rinpoche had just returned from a trip to Bordeaux, or perhaps Brittany, Brittany, along France's southern Atlantic shore, where they had given some teachings. In Tibet and throughout the Himalayas, people have no beach to go to, and certainly the monks in some traditions are prohibited from swimming. So it must have been the first time Kempo had seen the beach and observed exactly what Westerners do there. When he came back to the monastery, he began by giving us a Dharma teaching about the eight worldly pitfalls, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, praise and blame. And then suddenly started talking about the beach and how he and Rinpoche had gone to the very edge of the ocean. It was so big, he said in an almost childlike awe, calling it something like King Trident's house, the house of the king of the ocean. And then he excitedly described what he had seen. There were these people there, and instead of sitting and meditating or doing yoga, these people were just lying there. almost naked, and doing nothing. And then, when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. (laughs) And then they lay there again for a few hours. Kempo was was truly genuinely perplexed. In retrospect, he almost sounded as if he were out of the third rock from the sun the TV show about aliens coming down to Earth. (laughs) Why were were they doing that? He asked over and over. Though he couldn't understand it, he had so much compassion for them. How could they waste their precious human existence, he continued. This life that is so short, so tenuous, so precious, so valuable, so necessary, a life not to be squandered, but to be used impeccably and usefully for the benefit and welfare of all, a life to be used to think about the future in the next life, not just to lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. (laughs) Kempo was sincerely impassioned now. I just wanted to wake them up. Then he noticed there was a big white chair about 50 meters away, obviously the lifeguard's post. 
but there were two young people sitting there, he said, so I couldn't go up there. But I wanted to badly because I wanted to climb up there and announce to everybody it was time to wake up. Lama Suryadas went on to say, For all of us Westerners who heard Kempo's live report from the beach that day, we realized how truly empty our habits of indulgence were in the face of such devotion to life. I think we understand something of that devotion because we're certainly not sitting on the beach. <laughs> you know, we've, we've responded to this call to wake up. But I wanted to tell that story to remind us why we're here because I just know what it's like, how, you know, if you've been sitting here a long time, you just kind of at times go, what? what what's the... <laughs> What's the scoop here? Why am I doing this? What's the point of this? Is there a point? And actually, I think one of the reasons that the story really spoke to me tonight was not that, well, it is related to tonight's talk because it's always about awakening. But um, my talk tonight comes out of my own practice and just something I've been looking at in my own mind. And then about five o'clock tonight, I looked at my notes and it was just this sense of, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, is this going to make sense to anybody else? You know, and I was just reminded of, you know, moments of insight, moments of profound insight. You know, I remember being on retreat and had been with the, the rising and falling of the abdomen. And there was a moment where there was rising and the mind knew it. And then it changed to falling, and the mind knew it. And, you know, it was just so amazing. And there was so much awe and wonder in the mind. But, you know, you tell that to somebody else, and they go, well, yeah, duh, huh? <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. <laughs> but really, you know, it was so... So I had this sense of looking at this talk for tonight, and it really coming from this place of exploration, something that I found really interesting. But then just imagining me sitting up here and you all going, duh. <laughs> but it helped me to, when I heard and read that story just to remember the context that we're just, you know, it's the journey of awakening. And, you know, tonight I'm presenting one little aspect of that journey. But for me, it's some place where, you know, the exploration has been fruitful, has been interesting, really helps me to practice. Or, you know, and I, keep, I always use this word practice, and I really want to define it a bit more because it doesn't mean sitting. It doesn't mean walking. It means really looking into the nature of what's transpiring, whatever I'm doing. And so, you know, this is just a, feels like a very humble offering to you of something from my own exploration. And the theme of it is really around the Berry Town motto, which is tranquil, tranquil and alert. 
And it's really the whole theme of what I've been, you know, kind of really exploring, you know, I have over years, but just in the last week, there's been kind of just a refreshed new energy to this. And, you know, I want to say just a little bit about Tranquil and Alert, the town motto, because um, really without that town motto, we might not be sitting here right now. It was an auspicious indicator uh, when Joseph and Sharon and others were looking at whether they would purchase the retreat center, you know, the the main retreat center that's across the way. Um, and, you know, they weren't sure. And they went into town. And they're sitting there pondering this, throwing the idea around. And then they, they notice this, uh, I can't remember if it's a stone or what it is, that has the town motto on it, tranquil and alert. And it was sort of like, hmm, a town that's got this motto, that, you know, that could be auspicious. So because of that motto, we're sitting here today. Other than Maui, you know, we could have been on Maui. (laughs) But here we are. (laughs) So tranquil and alert, this exploration. We may have noticed in our practice times when the mind is quiet, is still, is relaxed. And yet, at times, there's a stickiness to this tranquility. There's a stuckness. There's not a lot of wisdom or understanding. And on the other side of it, we may have noticed times in our practice where the mind is alert, aware, interested, overly interested, curious, figuring out, Analyzing. And yet, when these two come together, tranquility and alertness, it can be transformative. This is um, from a Thai laywoman, Upasaka Ki Nyananyan. She has a book called Pure and Simple. She says, So when you practice, you have to observe in your meditation how you can make the mind still. Once it grows still, it tends to get stuck there. Or it maybe becomes empty without any knowledge of anything, quiet, disengaged, at ease for a while, but without any discernment to accompany it. But if you can get discernment to accompany your concentration, that's when you'll really benefit. You'll see things all the way through and be able to let them go. If you're too heavy on the side of either discernment or stillness, you can't let go. The mind may come to know this or that, but it latches on to knowledge. Then it knows still other things and latches onto them too, or else it simply stays 
perfectly quiet and latches on to that. So tonight, looking at how we might find a balance between tranquility and alertness. Tranquility and alertness, um, on one level, really relate to the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. These are conditions in the mind that are conducive towards awakening. And on one side we have uh, the arousing qualities, that of investigation, effort or energy, interest, joyful interest. And on the stabilizing side, that of uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And the joining of these two is really through mindfulness. You know, it's really the basis of developing or calling forth these qualities in the mind. And the Buddha once said of the seven factors of awakening, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when one develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, they slant, slope, and incline the mind towards nibbana. He also went on to say, I do not see even one other thing than that when developed and cultivated so that they lead to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of awakening. Now these are really allies in our minds. You know, we hear lots of talk about the defilements or, you know, the hindrances, greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, these are kind of mind states that, when not clearly seen, really obstruct clear seeing. But on the other side, these seven factors of awakening are factors that are helpful, that really slant the mind towards the realization of this deepest peace. And so tonight, although tranquility and alertness are really connected to these seven factors of awakening, to, uh, you know, on one side the stabilizing qualities and on on the other side the arousing qualities, um, I'm going to be speaking more generally than going into real definitions of these factors of awakening. But it really falls into this teaching. On the side of tranquility, of the calming or stabilizing factors, My exploration was really around just what's helpful there. You know, what helps the mind to stabilize in awareness? And really to remember that, you know, our practice is to see things as they are, 
moment by moment by moment. And, you know, with a steadiness of mindfulness, then wisdom comes, understanding, discernment. But this basis, basis of this being mindfulness, being this capacity of the mind to simply recognize, to know. And so, what helps this quality of mindfulness to stabilize? Tarini and I have both been speaking a lot about some of these aspects. So, uh, for some of you, it will be reminders, and many of you have just more recently arrived. But the first piece is around relaxation. A sense of relaxing as we practice. Not just right now in your experience to let this suggestion to relax be there. And to notice how there can be within that just a sense of not struggling, not straining, not leaning forward, not trying to do anything. But, you know, it's like you've worked hard at the end of the day. You sit down and relax. Does it support tranquility? Calmness? Yes. It's helpful. And so, to remember, you know, at times, just to bring in this reflection, Word, just to bring in this word, relax, and feel the effect of it. And then, you know, many times there's relax, but there's still tension. We relax with the tension, not struggling, not fighting. If whatever state comes along, we can relax with. If aversion is present, relaxing with aversion relaxing with frustration relaxing with you know and we see within that there's there's some level of acceptance this this is just the way things are right now this is the aspect of mindfulness this is what is accepting what comes you know not trying to create some experience So relaxing, accepting, having a sense of simply receiving experience, whatever it is, receiving this moment, this experience, receiving the breath, sound, thought, tension, joy, just receiving, not needing to do anything with.
trust becomes an essential component of this. Because if we don't trust, we can't relax. There's this sense of needing to control, needing to get, the grasping. It's going to arise. It's been around a long time. But we don't have to be run by it. Seeing the grasping, relaxing with, receiving grasping, allowing it to be. Becoming familiar in our own experience with the quality of trust, what it feels like to trust what it feels like to be open to, to be at ease with, to be contented with. Now really, you know, for just one moment, can we trust that this is enough? You don't have to do it for the rest of your life just for one moment. What's it like to sit here? To trust. Trust for me has a felt sense of being held. You know, where there's not the sense of trying to hold oneself up. There's that relaxing back into. Someone recently sent me this poem. It's called First Lesson by Philip Booth. Lie back, daughter. Let your head be tipped back into the cup of my hand. Gently, and I will hold you. Spread your arms wide. Lie out on the stream and look high at the gulls. A dead man's float is face down. You will dive and swim soon enough where this tidewater ebbs to the sea. Daughter, believe me, when you tire on the long thrash to your island, lie up and survive. As you float now where I held you, and let go. Remember when fear cramps your heart what I told you. Lie gently and wide to the light year stars. Lie back and the sea will hold you. Now when we have fear, we grasp. We want something to hang on to. It's, you know, our tendency, our pattern. You know, when you face little fears in your life, to see if instead there can be this movement to lie back, be held, float, rather than thrashing. 
It's often the case, many people have reported it, that there are times when we deeply relax. There's a settledness in the mind. And then there comes the attachment to the stillness. A stillness that differs from openness because there's a subtle sense of I am in it. There's a subtle sense of something to protect. It becomes evident because there's a trying to push away anything that threatens it. It isn't, doesn't have within it that sense of receiving. It can't receive the anger. It can't receive the aversion. And so it's not vitally alive. It's not vibrant. It's not the place of understanding. Stillness is helpful so long as it's not attached to and is accompanied by this alertness of mind. This alertness, it's supported by the quality of investigation, which is a non-analytical investigation. It's not the trying to figure things out. That only keeps us on the conceptual level. And concepts will always fall short of direct experience. Sayra Upandita describes investigation. He says, it's intuitive, a sort of discerning insight that distinguishes the characteristics of phenomena, which is a synonym for wisdom or insight. It's this quality. Actually, wisdom is the wisdom. Investigation is the wisdom quality. It's the quality of turning the light on in the mind, of really, you know, uh, you know, when when there's a dark room, we can't tell what's going on. We can't tell what's around us. When investigation is there. It's like the mind can see, it can discern. You know, it can see what's happening in body and mind. It's this level of discerning the nature of this mind-body experience. Know that there is the capacity to know mind states. We know mind states in their specific qualities, what's specific to any experience. You know that anger has a certain texture to it. Joy has a different texture. Um, the mind's able to discern this. Contentment has a different texture. This quality of investigation 
can recognize what's specific to each experience, whether it's in body or mind. It also is able to recognize the universal characteristics. It's, it's able to recognize impermanence, the changing nature of experience. It's, it, it can recognize the unsatisfactoriness because experience is always changing. It can see that it's insubstantial. It's this intuitive understanding. I know earlier in my practice, many, many years ago, I was somebody who could sit down. I could sit for long periods of time, but I had not a clue what happened in that time. You know, (laughs) looking back on it, I really wonder what was going on. Because there wasn't this quality of investigation. You know, so there was no discernment. There was no... You know, and the, with that, without that, we're in ignorance. The, there's no clear seeing. And <sighs> it's been um, a journey, an exploration, to to get in touch with this factor of investigation, because. You know, certainly in my own mind, the mind can, you know, uh, in veer in looking into experience towards moving into a, a more analytical, analyzing, um, figuring out. But what really helped me around investigation was the sense of listening. You know, where where the it's it's the mind feeling into the experience and discerning what's there. And it's very alive. It's very vibrant. And so helpful in bringing forth wisdom. But for me, that you know, it's been such a play between where it starts to, you know, that interest in experience starts to trigger the, the thinking mind, starts to trigger that analysis. And that's where uh, needing to be balanced with that sense of receptivity. For the complacent mind, or, you know, who ta- well, that tends to get stuck in the tranquility, that often, you know, just inserting some questions can be helpful. You know, just by, not a question that's to be figured out, but, you know, the question of, what is this? Or, is there anything not being seen? You know, just something that helps to open up the mind. Because with an open mind, it's not stuck in silence, but it's receiving all kinds of data 
but not moved, is stable. Needing, um, it's just so rich in exploration. I'd like to share something from Sayadaw Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher that I've been practicing with in the last few years. And this is, he was, is something of his exploration around investigation. And he was really using it, you know, not with the calm, tranquil mind, but looking into the depths of suffering. He had been suffering from depression. He, this, he'd had a few bouts of depression. He was in his third round of depression. Um, and the, the first couple of times he, he actually said that he had been able through you know, a really strong, willful effort to overcome the depression. But this you know, third bout of depression, uh, he didn't have the same level of energy. And so this is just him speaking about his experience. <clears throat> the key for me in dealing with my depression was right attitude. I realized I'd have to use my wisdom to learn about it, understand it, by just recognizing the depression and being present with it. I would just recognize that this was nature. This was just a quality of mine. It was not personal. I watched it continually to learn about it. Does it go away? Does it increase? What is the mind thinking? How do thoughts affect feelings? I became interested. I saw that when I do the work with interest, my investigation would bring some relief. Before that, I'd I'd been at the depression's mercy. But I learned I could actually do something. I was choosing to be proactive, to find out about depression. And then it lightened. The main thing that changed was acceptance complete acceptance. I saw I was helpless to do anything, so I just let it be there. But I could examine it, do something with myself. I couldn't do anything to it. Now that's an important point. I couldn't do anything to it. But I could investigate it and come to know it. With interest and investigation, there's wisdom. Effort alone, without wisdom, the way people generally understand it, is, is associated with strained activities because it is usually motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion. Effort with wisdom is a healthy desire to know and understand whatever arises without any preference for the outcome. This quality of discernment takes us right into the Dhamma, right into the nature of things. The nature of things right here, right now. Knowing the nature of these sensations in the body. Heaviness, pressure, tightness knowing the specific qualities, knowing in our own experience 
through discernment, through really paint, having interest in this experience, we see what happens. We see things disappear, be gone, impermanence. The nature of things. When this quality of investigation is there, it brings it helps to sustain the attention. And this will help the stability. When there's investigation, interest in what's happening, you know, it's like interest plays a vital role and similar to when we learn to do any new thing and we need interest in order to do it. If we don't have interest, we can't stay with it. And so this quality of interest helps the mind to connect moment by moment. It helps the continuity. And you know, even though we use the words relax, be aware, receptive, we have to do this moment by moment. You know, it's, it's not that we're setting up for a flaky practice. No, it's not. There's got to be a commitment, a willingness of heart, a courageousness of heart to be interested where it's difficult, painful. So on the side of the alertness of mind, there's investigation, this sense of really listening to experience, sensing into the experience, intuiting the experience. There's the need for perseverance, a courageousness of heart, the application of effort, that you know, willingness to keep coming back, to keep returning, to keep looking. And this leads to a really joyful interest, a joyful exploration, because we're exploring into truth, into the way of things. And the mind lights up with this. You know, when... I mean, I hear it from you. <laughs> it's not only my own mind. I hear it from you. Just that, that joy of seeing something in its simplicity as it is. It's such a relief. There's a lightness of heart, an ease. Going back to Upasaka Ki Nanian, 
just part of the initial teaching I gave from her, where she says, but if you can get discernment to accompany your concentration, that's when you'll really benefit. You'll see things all the way through and be able to let them go. Practicing with an alive, vital sense of looking into truth looking into the way of things in a very, very simple way. Receiving this moment, this experience, as it is. Letting the mind stabilize. Working with continuity moment by moment. Sayadaw Utejaniya says, when there is awareness, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, when we feel light, alert, and awake, over time you find you're discovering that awareness becomes more firmly established and that the mind becomes steadier You understand things you didn't before. We get a different perspective on life, a different way of seeing, of being with this mind and body that really reflects through an ease with how we relate to this mind and body where we don't feel so baffled so confused where we're not pushing away that which we don't want where we're not grasping on and trying to hang on to that which is pleasing this is a teaching from Ajahn Sumedho The freedom from suffering that the Buddha talked about isn't in itself an end to pain and stress. Instead, it's a matter of creating a choice. I can get either caught up in the pain that comes to me, attached to it, and be overwhelmed by it, or I can embrace it and through acceptance and understanding not add more suffering to the existing pain the unfair experiences, the criticism or the misery that I face. Even after his enlightenment, the Buddha experienced all kinds of horrendous things. His cousin tried to murder him. People tried to frame him, blame him, and criticize him. He experienced severe illness. But the Buddha didn't create suffering around these experiences. His response was never one of anger, resentment, hatred, or blame, but one of acknowledgement. This has been a really valuable thing for me to know. It's, not, it's taught me not to ask for favors in life or to hope that if I meditate a lot, I can avoid unpleasant experiences. God, I've been a monk for 33 years. Please reward me for being a good boy. I've tried that, and it doesn't work. To accept life without making any pleas, is very liberating because I no longer feel a need to control 
or manipulate conditions for my own benefit. I don't need to worry or feel anxious about my future. There's a sense of trust and confidence, a fearlessness that comes through learning to trust, to relax, to open to life, and to investigate experience rather than to resist or be frightened by it. If you're willing to learn from the suffering in your life, you'll find the unshakability of your own mind. And this is what the play of tranquility and alertness can lead us to. This alive investigation to find that which is unshakable. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.